Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that wants to find all the literary smut, even in the Irish language. My name is Aoife Vrutnach, historian and book nerd. This episode will be a bit different, because this time I'm not reading just one book, but discussing a theme, censorship in the Irish language. Kinsaracht er lauer feilsheha as gaelge. Agus ma ta shaktan na gaelge going fui lauer, beg begonin gaelge o side going sechlar sha. Ach na bi lads, it won't be that much Irish. I will read out bits in the original language, because I have to do that. There will also be summaries of that material in English, but I'm not too hot on the proper translations, so bear with me there. The reason I haven't covered any books in Irish to date is because the censorship acts were confined to works in English only. Irish was constitutionally enshrined as the other language of the state in 1937, but was never formally included in the legislation. That means the rather odd situation arose where the Act was translated into Irish but never applied to any Irish language texts. So the state never formally banned any books, Asgoelge. But of course they didn't. Irish was supposed to be the real, true language of Ireland and that meant it was free from any foreign corrupting influences. None of your Sosnach Mok Asgoelge. By definition, Irish could not be evil literature. But the Censorship Board wasn't the only organisation stopping the Irish public from reading filth. And that's what I want to talk about today with my guest. Toglundararum Foyta Chariv on Dr. Brona Allison. Brona wrote a PhD about the language revival policies of the Irish Free State from 1922 to 1948. Hi Brona, welcome to the pod. Hello, Gemma Tati. Good morning. So in Kaelkesht, what drink do we choose to go with the Irish language and censorship? I mean, is pochine or tea, are they the best options? Probably a Guinness with a pochine chaser, I would imagine. What do you think? Yeah, if it wasn't so early in the day, I would definitely do that right now. I mean, I've, I've, I have a coffee at the minute. I mean, it is, it is way too early. It's 20 minutes too early for me to be drinking. And these things are hard to come by these days. 
Yeah, I would say a stout, and it has to has to be a Guinness. None none of your Southern Murphy's stuff going on here. <laughs> we be we potching chaser. That's the very important part about today. Also, is that you know we will have a Southern Northern conflict going on in so many ways. Uh, but it's okay to be drinking coffee because urban sophisticates do also speak Irish. You know, we can we can bust the stereotypes. <laughs> what are you drinking? Uh, green tea, wanky notions tea. That's that's very sophisticated. So we're going to do things a little bit differently this time because I'm going to explain one censorship case and then Brona is going to tell me about the other censorship case because she knows it a lot better than I do. It was part of her PhD. The one I'd like to talk about is one I actually haven't read, which is kind of shameful. But now that I've read bits of it, I understand why I haven't read it. Have you heard of Antilonach before, Brona? Yes, yes, yeah. It is a very famous piece. There's, there's a lot of things from the early days that I didn't actually read in Irish because, you know, I was young and hip and trendy and stuff and didn't really want to be reading about people on, you know, from previous centuries or decades ago doing things with potatoes and turf or whatever it was. I didn't, re- I didn't really have any interest in, in that kind of literature. And, you know, I sort of still don't as a matter of well, fact or interest, but I did, um, I have read some of the early, early literature, but not until on it, no. Yeah, I would be the same. It seemed really, really old-fashioned at the time. Yeah. These sort of books were huge in the early 20th century because they reflected all of that revival, rediscovery stuff, isn't it? It's all about, you know, finding this rich source of language and culture in isolated Western districts. But I think that that perhaps doesn't have as much bearing on our lives these days. So it's kind of understanding. I mean, it would be interesting, you know, from if you weren't reading them as literature, but as a, like an anthropological piece or something, you know, something that would describe in an idiomatic way how people saw their, their life and existence, like Peg and, you know, it was supposed to be Peg and and, and, and Talonic would be the two main ones. And on that way, would would describe that kind of, of life in, in the language of the time and idiomatic way so it'd be that kind of interest but the way it was presented I suppose to you when you were at school and when I was at school and college is you know some kind of literature and you know when you're in your 20 something reading American Psycho and then suddenly somebody gives you until on you're like no I don't think so I can't stick with this that's okay yeah I mean uh, like until means the island man and it was written by a guy called Tommaso Crihan, and it's written when he's very old, at the end of his life. So it's a memoir slash folklore compilation by an old bloke from the Blaskets. So it's, it, it is a difficult sell, I think. And that's part of the reason why everyone hates Peg, because she's from that time as well, and from the Blaskets, and is famously hated by generations of schoolchildren. So yeah, Antilonach was published in 1929, and this guy, Tommaso Crihan, had actually, which I didn't know, was a big kind of Irish language educator. So all of these English speakers would come to the Blasket uh, looking to learn Irish. And among the most famous was Robin Flower, who got called Unblawheen, which means little flower. And so he learned his Irish from people like Tommaso Crihan. So this, you know, venerable old fella teaching these you know, young intellectuals coming to learn the language. And that's how he became famous, actually. I think it was Robin Flower encouraged him to write down his his life and his stories of the Blasket. So it's supposed to be, a, you know, 
explaining to people how this culture worked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was published in 1929, but it wasn't written entirely the way that you would expect because it was edited by someone called Anschauch. But when Anschauch was given Tommaso Crin's work, he rearranged it and he edited it a bit and he actually took out the rude bits or as they are described uh, elsewhere, earthy passages. <laughs> earthy passages. <laughs> I'm surprised there were any in the first place. Well, yeah, there wasn't really a huge amount. Recently, actually, his this has been reissued and re-edited by someone to put all of that back in. Okay. But there wasn't a huge amount. I think the most important editing he did was he just changed the way that O'Crihan presented all of his material. It wasn't just the rude stuff. So the new edition is supposed to be almost an entirely new text. Right. You wonder how much earthiness was actually going on, you know, in the background. Yes, that isn't explicit or obvious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there must be coded material. I mean, particularly with the passage of time and with the change in the way the language is spoken, that might be quite difficult to excavate. I'm going to read out the part that was excised. This is a part that was just cut entirely by Anschauch. I'm only going to read out some of it because it's a little bit long. And it's under the heading Namano Oga, the lovely ladies. Just can me leshke a gaoi live, mar gulche scriafa e canuint nach laurium hain agus thon litriach begonin shanashant of freshen. So be me begonin stabach. But here we go, here's the Irish bit. The bohum the mano ogasa, dinna ka extatam a cloisha, dinna ella ka egbant na ralfina asma live, bert eleg fara urum, con me a curr lot magroma on furthach. Congamuk show a cutterum. On class no beak machna hag dinner cut, the virchegalua egg dinner ella. What do you think of that? <laughs> Shall I translate it? Yeah, you're going to have to send me a copy of that so I can work it out. <laughs> okay, so he's saying a group of young ones came towards me, and uh, one of them started messing with my ears. The other one took my. Um, shovel from my hands and the shovel in this case is one of those special bog digging shovels two others uh were trying to put me on the flat of my back on the per- on the the bog and the immortal phrase so that they would have a show with me they'd be messing with me so i not assault really <laughs> well he doesn't say he fought them off <laughs> no doesn't say how many of them were there, does it? Just a group? Uh, well, later on, he says there were six of them. Cheapers. So six young ones looking for a, a bit of fun on the bog. And just him, which is a bit strange, isn't it? But spooftastic there, maybe? I mean, normally you would go to the bog with other people because it's generally more than a one-person job, isn't it? Yeah, some boy. Yeah, well, it goes on. There's more. Wow. Yeah. So I'm going to cut out all of the... Padding. So he says, She fatias is mo the viorum gugurhan shesher lakela, conmavrishta de vintium, ak near bulagan agonisitsin the yenov. So he says, The thing I really worried about was that the six of them together would take me trousers off, but they didn't think of that in the end. <laughs> they didn't think of that in the end. <laughs> yeah, apparently it just didn't strike them. <laughs> Maybe. 
there's something not there's something not right about that story. I I, I smell a rat in that story. <laughs> not that you know an, an assault, of course, is is the thing that they should have been thinking about here because that kind of sounds like where it's heading. That sounds that does sound particularly unsavoury, I have to say. But um, sounds to me like he's a wee bit disappointed. Yes, in the context of the previous paragraphs, he's like Cheshire Doig Doig Vanal. Like he's re- he's quite into it. I go with two. And he's really annoyed that they didn't take his trees down. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a little bit of embroidery, isn't there? But then, <laughs> so he goes on anyway. And apparently it happened more than once. Oh, really? Yeah, the bogs on the Blasket were the place to go if you wanted to get laid slash sexually assaulted, depending on your point of view. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so wait now, this is uh, near the end of the passage. It's it's about a page and a half of the book. So he says... August Galon Minnick, Bhid Da Kurp Lefeshkent nor Shine Oil on Green Reeve Rivershare Sun, Gideon Orsha. And you know, very often I would get to see bits of their body that the sun had never shone on before. Oh, that's so sweet. Does it say what age he is here? Not in the pages I have. I mean, it is implied that he's a young fella, he's unmarried, he isn't set up with anyone yet. He says explicitly that he isn't going out with any of these six girls. Like, so it's all a bit of fun and frolics. There's no strings attached. I wish things were, the no strings attached situation is now we're so, as, as so uncomplicated as that. <laughs> <laughs> all you need is six people to one and there's no strings attached. God. Uh, so that's been republished then. So that's been put back in again and republished. And it is, so that's, that's the only bit that was taken out. Yeah, that was the part that was cut out entirely. But other aspects of the way that the book was put together were, were were reworked. But the interesting thing is that the English translation that was also available from 1934, it was called The Island Man, also left all of this out. So in 2003, they published a new Irish version with all of this included, which I just read out. And in 2012, they published a new English translation. So now in both languages, you have the earthy bits back in. Wow. I think I would read one of them. I mean, I pick up Seamus O'Gwen and Kiss Jalon quite a bit and read read the stories there. I mean, I, I did that at A-level and, you know, they were quite easy to read. You know, from, from a language perspective, these things are great to read. But I think, I mean, I am thinking of reading Peg, actually. Peg, because Peg was, you know wasn't a northern Ulster writer. She was never on the curriculum for us, never even included. It was always Clan of Agrania from Ranafast. Ranafast, you were always on, on our curriculum. Peg was this kind of, ooh, what is this? You know, never, it was something I heard about really only when I um, went to college and then moved down to Cork was something I, I heard about. But I, I wouldn't mind going back and reading it now because apparently she was a wee bit earthy on it too. But yeah, I quite like Peg. Now, this, the stuff that I've read, I haven't found anything super earthy. So it could just be that that's all still in the archive and hasn't been published. Oh, and the one thing, I really have to do a small digression because the really funny thing about Tommaso Crihan on Thelonach is though I haven't read that book, I have read many, many, many times the skit on Antelonach and it's called On Milonach Nu An Bailbocht. Yes, on Milana. Isn't it just so good? <laughs> don't know that. Yeah. yeah, it's on the front page. It says on Milana. 
Oh, it's been so long since I've... I must live. It's been so long since I've actually read it. <laughs> I, ju- I should just explain that On Bail Bucht is a book written by Miles McGopoline and On Bail Bucht translates as The Poor Mouth. But its subtitle on Milonach is a pun on, on Tilonach. And Milon means blame or censure or failure or... So, yeah, it's turning Island Man into... The, the man who is blamed for everything. Yeah. Puns are hard to explain, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, if you haven't read On Tilonach, that's fine. But everybody in the world should read On Bailbuch. And it is available in English as The Poor Mouth. It was translated in 1971. But On Bailbuch by Miles Nagopoline in Irish is, in my opinion, one of the funniest books I have ever read. Yeah, it is. It is hilarious. It is so funny. It's great. Imagine the Gopaline slips between um, dialect and um, Bellbocht, which is which is great. Not many, not many could do that at the time. Yeah, one of his big jokes throughout the book is that all people who speak Irish are all somehow the same as well. So whichever Gaeltacht you live in, you can see all the other Gaeltachtí from your front door, which of course is geographically well, impossible. Look, that's right. Everywhere you look, you can see the, the compass. <laughs> The compass points four ways and all of them are west. (laughs) Because the west of Ireland is the centre of the Irish language concept and imagination. I mean, although it's an extreme version of of an an extreme account of of the thinking that was going on, it it does reflect thinking that was going on certainly right up until I was at university. Kind of, you're, you're Irish, so your soul is Irish, therefore you're connected in some way to, to people who have Irish now, to all, all your um, countrymen and generations of countrymen before you in whatever arcane way they spoke. You know, Cúhollán and the way he was talking Irish, I'm really, I'm, I'm really connected. I just want to go and watch Take That on Top of the Pops. Is that okay? From... Um, a pedagogic point of view, your linguistic ability, your ability to learn the language, you know, why can why do you not understand this? It's your language. You have these generations of connection. I don't know whether you felt that in school. I certainly felt it and I'm I'm not the only person who's who said that they, they felt this that you know, there's something wrong with you if you can't understand your your native language. Well I had a sort of a different experience because I grew up in an Irish speaking household outside the Gwelthoth, but in Cork City and I was my family was like a little island of Irish speaking and I literally knew nobody my own age who spoke Irish and so I had the strange experience of being of being treated differently because I spoke Irish even though technically the whole whole society says everyone should speak Irish that's a thing I mean I I always wanted it both ways you can't have it both ways make your mind up I think that Miles Nagopoline would have been very pleasantly surprised to see that Irish was so widely spoken in cities now. And he was he was a northerner as well. He was from County Antrim. And this this is a this is part of our, our um northern southern thing here. The the whole debate, very important part of the debate right from the start of the revival was which dialect is going to is going to win and it's it's thing here was when Monster Irish was seen because of the big, bigger population. Monster Irish was seen as being the most prevalent, most important, and that's where you know the Gaelic League would have used a lot of Monster Irish, and then Connacht and Ulster would go. And, but what about us? What about us? We're here. So there would have been this kind of this constant row going on about whose Irish was best. 
Um, but that, I mean, that that was part of the reason why the language was standardised. Yeah, it, a language has to be standardised. That doesn't mean dialects die. It just means that there is a standard form used in, like, the newspapers, and then people speak dialect. But it became a very zero-sum game in the Irish language context, didn't it? It did, yeah, yeah, it did very, very much so, very much so. I mean, I mean, even when I'm looking over this stuff with with Ngoom, the Department of Education publisher, um, a lot of the translators felt that Ulster Irish was being overlooked. There were, you know, so many translators putting uh, translating English books into Munster Irish, and only four or something like that doing Ulster Irish, and like two doing Connacht Connemara Irish, and like okay, whatever. But it was really Ulster and Munster because they are so very different. They are very very different. And again, going back to the point I was making about teaching. It's, again, expected that you're going to know, that you're going to instinctively know how to speak Munster Irish because, you know, it's, again, going back to the idea of the generations of Irish people before you speak in it. But but you don't. You don't hear the rhythms and the patterns just aren't there. And the words aren't there. The influences are completely different. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On on the two dialects are very, very different. The most exposure I ever had to the Ulster dialect was when we were in school. We used to do uh, listening comprehension tests yeah. with the three dialects. And you didn't even have that. Didn't you? Yeah, we had that where we had Connacht, Munster slash Standard, and then Ulster, and three, three listening pieces, and you were supposed to answer questions based on that. But that was the extent of my exposure to Ulster Irish if I didn't turn on Radio Nogeltic, which was really boring back then, so nobody yeah. did. Yeah, um, yeah. And as a result, it is difficult for me often to understand Ulster Irish with the rapidity that I would understand the others. It's just, I'm usually about three seconds behind the person speaking. I'm, I'm waiting for my brain to catch up. <laughs> I know, and then because then of the syntax and the word order, you're like, hold on, are we saying? Well, what are they talking about? <laughs> well, we'll talk about, um, I've mentioned Ungoom, we'll talk about, um, I'll talk about Anfani and 
and Drummond Moore because the the reasons for censorship were very different. Funny, the censorship for that would be more, but the, I have to read out what what they said about it. Oh yes, I I really need to know more about Ungoom and all of this state publishing system and how it worked. Goom, well, Ungoom was the um, publishing house established by the Department of Education to to produce works of literature in Irish. So because it was, they were part of the department, so that was obviously before the Censorship and Publications Act, but because Ungoom was part of the Department of Education, there was kind of self-censorship going on. The censorship was already happening and didn't need to go to an outside, an outside body. But what did happen was that in those days, it was um, Christian Lohr was the committee that looked at the books, what books was were going to be looked at and possibly published. And there was... Um, uh, how would you say, not intervention or interference, but it was input from the Catholic Truth Society. They found out what was happening. That body found out what was going on with uh, Kitchen and Law and Department of Education. And then Kitchen and Law and Kitchen and Phil Shahan, uh Committee for Publications became on Goom. So there was a book in 1926 called Fanny by, by Sean Og O'Caveney. And the Catholic Truth Society... Reverend Michael Murphy, the diocesan examiner for the Archdiocese of Dublin, wrote a report about the book. Now, this is interesting in the context of your podcast because you don't have any reasons under the censorship board. You have no reasons being given for why things weren't being published. But I have reasons for Irish publications. There are actual reasons, written reasons being given. Father Murphy talks about what the book is about and then then he talks about the the problems that he and the Catholic Truth Society had with this book so I'll just read out a bit of this um, so this is, in it. he says in its plot it is quite harmless and the book from a strict doctrinal point of view quite orthodox there are however grave objections to the book, it contains contains passages which describe strange, morbid sentiment, a copying of French sex psychology literature and as such unsustainable for the Catholic reading public in Ireland. French psychology literature? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) There is a worse feature arising from the fact that this book is to be a text in the hands of Irish schoolboys and schoolgirls during the formation of their character. These sentimental passages will be slowly construed with the rest. Imagination will be fired and ideals proposed in other departments of Irish school life will be of necessity lessened. Imagine a young religious having to translate and explain these passages. So it was on to explain what these passages are. And he talks about, um, I mean, the story of this is set in South Dakota. It's a young American girl and lives with her brother and then finds another bloke and then... It was one day the latter attempts to assault her, but as Rupaul, she fancies somebody else who's a rather clean type, apparently, and then she dreams all day of possessing him. Well, I mean, get it up. So, uh, and then, so the Father Murphy is very upset about this, and he said, um, he talks about the psychology of her sex feelings. Described to lie in the arms of a man to take his kisses and return them. Such was her heart's desire. So that's unacceptable. Well, yeah, because women, I mean, women don't have any sex feelings, don't you know? In 1926, certainly they didn't. Oh, that is true. Yes, definitely have no sex feelings. No, 
No, and then he's the, the psychology of her sex feelings. How dare she? How very dare she? The Catholic Truth Society was involved with um, publication in the Department of Education at that point. So they, these two committees, Kitchen and Law and Kitchen and Falsterhound, became and goom. So I'm trying, I'm trying to think of a way to describe this best. So what the Department of Education, so what Ungoom was trying to do was produce literature of great linguistic purity while keeping the Catholic morality because of the involvement of the Catholic Church morality to keep that to keep them as two buttresses really and they're they're not necessarily mutually exclusive but it's a difficult ask I think Mm. it's a difficult ask so the censorship self-censorship is going on and this and Fanny was was an original piece which was quite unusual because most things, certainly when one in Goom was firmly established, most things were sent out for translation. So we have these are translations rejected by Ngoom in 1931. Lord Jim, which I'd never heard of before. Joseph was Joseph Conrad, heavy and boring. Uh, Mark Twain, Life on the Mississippi, too long, which I, I suspect means they didn't, they wouldn't want to do a paid at somebody. Oh, okay. Too long as in per word, the cost would be too expensive rather than it being long in a boring sense. Yeah, yeah. The romance of excavation. I'm not really sure. There's no author here, and sounds sounds like a delight, but um, scrappy and written in intolerable gush. Oh, and one of the the other ones they rejected was by a guy called Edgar Wallace, and it was the Green Archer. And the reason, and this is just the craziest reason, unsuitable for Irish. Now, I wonder why. What could be unsuitable about words in one language going into words in another language? Maybe they didn't have the words. Maybe archery or something. I don't know. They didn't have the arch words for Skype Narrows. I don't know. Well, I had a quick look and it's a kind of a thriller, cheesy mass market murder mystery slash thriller thing. Ah, murder? Doomvaru, like we have the word for murder, so it isn't, it isn't like the Irish lack words for death. <laughs> or violence <laughs> yeah so I mean it's a very strange concept to the judgments that they passed they're both literary pragmatic and then weirdly nationalist I mean unsuitable for Irish must be some weird nationalism purity thing there so I, d- I didn't really I mean that was that was 1931 I didn't really get much better I don't think from Ungoom so That'll bring me on to um, the next piece I wanted to talk about. This this was a banned book. This was by an an original piece of work by an Ulster author called Shosu McGrena. Uh, Clan McGrena are were from Ranaferstia up in Gidor in Donegal, and there was a family of nine, and there was Shosu McGrena and Seamus O'Grena, otherwise known as Myra. They would be the most famous writers from the family. And um, Seamus McGrena was a journalist. He wrote pieces for uh, papers as well. And his book that was banned was called On Drum and Moor, uh, which means the big drum. And it's basically a story about uh, St. Patrick's Day and a big tr- drum coming out and the uh, ancient order of Hibernians and the, the Catholic ones. The Sons of St. Patrick and a rivalry going on between them about who gets to bang the drum and all this kind of stuff. It The way it was written 
It wasn't written in that kind of echo-arnial folklore storytelling kind of way. It was an actual story. It was it was a novel. It was still rich in Ulster Irish and dialect and idiom and all those. I mean, I haven't read the whole thing. I have read bits of it, bits and pieces of it. So the first, so it was uh, first read in 1932. So the, it went through its first, its first reader, D- Donald McRaney, and he writes. Um, Oh, what did I just get? Yeah, Tan Kuntas a hugam and Tudor go fear why Agus and Guelga go hen talk bralium have backed backed. My Dutch man at Jala is more in sure next stand shading Ashur Fad, Agus Nakhtishin and Scriver as a stuum hen. So the story which the author tells is excellent and the Irish is beautifully precise and fluent. As I've said elsewhere, it is a great pity that he doesn't give up translations totally and start writing on his own initiative. There are a couple of references here and there to the church and clerics, and I would prefer if they were omitted, be they true or otherwise. Now, this is a hint of the trouble that's going to start with this. One more thing. There is a basic truth to this story, and it will be easy for people brought up in this area to recognise the people being referred to, although false names are used. I don't think there is any cause for libel action on the matter. That is that is where, where problems came along, because I think there was something like 19 people in the book could have been identified and their names were only very slightly changed. Um, so, and, and this book ended up with political ramifications, you know, when people were, uh, in, in the story, people were uh, kidnapped by volunteers and put on islands and this kind of thing. Whoever was involved in the shenanigans could easily have gone, that's me, and by the way, I'm still alive. So, you know, so it took over 30 years for Ungoom to get published. And over the time, Shosin Negrena was getting more and more and more upset. But fundamentally, they're very worried that people will have some cause for suing them, aren't they? They're like, these yes. 19 people will see themselves in the book. And this is the disadvantage of writing books that are so rooted in an identifiable local community, is that people will have opinions. Yeah, by 1935, they were still talking about, you know, continuing uncertainty about libel action. And this is going to the, this is to the, uh, up with the Attorney General. So they actually refer it to the Attorney General for his opinion. How extraordinary. Okay, let me read this bit out. Um, uh, correspondence with the Attorney General's office. The plot of this story has a basis of fact and most of the characters who took part in the original incidents described are still alive. Most of the incidents described actually took place in the years 1911 to 1916. In the original version of the story as submitted to the department, it was obvious as can be seen from the reader's report in this file, which I read it earlier, the book could not be published as it then stood and the author was persuaded to make many changes. It was felt at the time that the characters were so changed they could not be recognised in the story. However, as is now clear from further information concerning the incidents described, the changing of the characters so as to ensure that they could not be recognised was not entirely satisfactory. Uh, they changed the name, appearance and age. Other external details concerning certain characters could still be recognised. So it's not about filth in this sense. It's not about the content. It's about reputation and. Oh yeah, I mean it, yes, as as a piece of gossip, it's I mean it's outstanding. I mean it is it is about reputation, reputation management from all directions. I mean that's basically what it is. Is is a piece of gossip in really nice Irish, with some kind of, I don't know, Dostoevskian 
nod somewhere in a really strange way. I mean, it was like a prototype almost for like a Marching O'Kine style book. You know what I mean? But just not very well thought through. Schultz of Magriana did change the text to help mitigate this problem, but they just kept saying, no, it's not enough. It wasn't enough, yeah, yeah. So it was postponed indefinitely. Postponed. The issue had been postponed indefinitely by the Department of Education, and Andromeda was eventually published by Angoom in 1969. Presumably when everyone was dead up in the parish in question. It's funny that they complained he wouldn't write more on his own initiative when the damn thing he wrote on his own initiative they refused to publish. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he was, I mean, he really hated them by, by this point. He was threatening his own legal action and he said, uh, he said to the bureaucrats of Angoom should cack a eha, which I'm too, I'm, too, I'm too nice to translate that, but basically eat poo. No, eat shit. Come on, say it. I'm too nice. So the, the text that was finally published, you know, if I was to say read out the contentious bits, well, the contentious bits had been vanished by then, really, hadn't they? Yeah, and you would need to know. You would need to know who the people were. You'd need to know who the contentious people were. And did they ever refuse to translate something that was already banned? So, uh, again, going through the censorship literature already banned by the censors could not be published in, in translation by Ngum, notwithstanding the established tradition of removing offending passages. And one example of that was Sean of Wayland's Midsummer Night's Madness, which was read by Michal Bratnach in 1932, but was not recommended for translation. Book banned and the decision on the text read, book banned by censor, not to be placed on the list of books for translation. So that was April 1932. So that that is an example of a book that was banned under the uh, under the Act, considered not to be trans- translated by the censor, which that actually does surprise me that it wouldn't have already gone to Ngoom as a censored list, that it would have even reached that far. But then if you're, if you're listening, if you believe what, Josie McGrain and the other authors were saying about Angoon being a bureaucratic mess and, you know, with the, with the backlogs and the payment and the publication problems, then it's possible that censored books, books on the censored list would have gone there for possible translation. But no, I mean, that's the, that's the only evidence I have of something that I know was on the censored list not being translated for the reason that being that it was on the censored list and was, was not to be published in, in any language. So the story of censorship in the Irish language is led by the government through Ungoom, which is this publishing house, and which creates both self-censorship and then, you know, follows the censorship banned blacklist. Mm -hmm. And then you have all of that dialect conflict going on at the same time, where some authors feel like they're very sidelined because they don't speak something that's closer to the standard dialect, which is based on Munster. So there's all sorts of stuff going on. So even if Irish isn't formally censored by the Censorship of Publication Acts, you can't say that it wasn't influenced by attempts to keep things away from people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the the, the precursors to Ungum, Kilchen and Filshahan, I guess Kilchen and Lohr, they came out of the committee uh, of... Um, evil literature, the Committee on Evil Literature. I mean, they they came from the same they came from the same place. So the censorship censorship act came from the same place, and uh, Christian Laura and Christian Fulshahan came from the same place as well. 
and you know the involvement of the Catholic Church being allowed. So yeah, so but I think the story with Irish literature as well is that they were they were trying to create, recreate, um, a, well the a life a life bygone life and 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 a new gone a new existence, um, of a pure Irish, um, temperament sex free no psychology sex feelings or whatever going on um where no, nobody nobody drank and nobody really did anything really apart from be pure and irish and i think you know that was it was a, a it was a campaign like a like a campaign of creating a pure i'm gonna say folk but that wouldn't really work but you know what i mean <laughs> And in, in, in keeping with, with the times of the whole nationalist project, what, what they really wanted to achieve, rather than thinking, well, let's, let's just see how it, how it works out and develops itself. They were, they were shoehorning it into, into moral standards and linguistic standards. It's not, just a, it's not just a language project. I mean, this is a national revival resurgence pride moment this isn't just about words this is about morality and like you say sex feelings and putching yeah but with the odd idea that that the words themselves would, would create, create some kind of riches for people in the grail talked when we all know that that just you know wasn't happening at the same time the things that people in the grail talked actually needed weren't forthcoming that was great brona i mean the story of Joseph O'Grina telling the civil servants to eat shit is actually the best thing I've heard this year from the archives and the the idea that this national project of publication and stuff was as subject to censorship as walking into Eason's to buy a newspaper is just great. It's a perfect illustration of that whole 30s revival project and how um, deeply nativist and racist it was at its heart. Thank you. Fuck your what? Agus Shindera le teama kinsrachta sugailge. Ele heid de scale. Kormach agus shivam wisa fertach, agus na den tagart are the sex feelings hain. Now, this is episode 10 of season 4, and that's officially the end of the season. But I want to do one more episode about James Joyce's Ulysses. This was never on the Irish blacklist, but it was at the centre of censorship in Britain and America. Ulysses is one of the most famously indecent books ever written in English, so it's quite strange it was never banned in Ireland. Like, it's so rude, I might be too embarrassed to read bits out. You'll have to listen next week to find out. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.